Let me tell you a story, podcast number 127. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago, age of never mind it is a how long we saw You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, I'm Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. We're glad you joined us for another fascinating podcast. Today, our guest is Ron Hillbrands, a friend who has flown airplanes in remote parts of the world for an organization called Mission Aviation Fellowship, or MAF. For eight years, he served as a pilot mechanic in the countries of Indonesia and Lesotho. I had to look up Lesotho and learned it's a beautiful yet small country inside of South Africa. Later in his 36-year career with MAF, Ron left flying to manage their mobilization department. We'll have him tell us about some of his overseas adventures and more about MAF in a bit. But first, we'd like to welcome Ron and then have Steve ask the first question. So thank you for joining us, Ron. Thank you for having me. I'm going to start out with a big tough question here, Ron. When did you become interested in flying, and how did you get involved with MAF? Well, actually, I always enjoyed the idea of flying, but I didn't actively pursue it until I was in the Navy. I did it more for fun than anything else. I didn't think there was any way that I could be a professional pilot or anything like that, but uh, I did enjoy flying. So I took a few flight lessons and continued on with my regular job in the Navy. My interest in flying was always there. I was always fascinated looking up at airplanes, but I didn't really see how that would be a future for me. Uh, When I was a pastor's kid growing up, I always thought that if you weren't a preacher, then there was no other way to serve God. And so I decided that um, I would maybe continue taking flight lessons, but I wasn't really sure how that would help me in anything in the future. I was still a relatively new Christian because I didn't really get saved until I was uh, 21 years old. And so I ended up being on board my ship, trying to figure out what all this means in terms of serving God and yet wanting to do something that I enjoyed. And I happened to see a magazine on the table in our compartment where we slept. And there was a magazine about flying. And so I looked at it and there was an article called The Making of a Mountain Flyer. And that was fascinating to me. It sounded really exciting. So I read the article and it was all about the flying and the training that Mission Aviation Fellowship does. And it was just a real eye-opener for me in that I didn't realize you could actually enjoy what you were doing and serve the Lord at the same time. So I started pursuing this whole thing and finding out from MAF 
how to go about becoming a pilot. And so I ended up going to a school, Moody Bible Institute, where they had an aviation training program, as well as training for the Bible. And so I, I went through that whole program. It was five years. And upon graduation, I went out and started working with Mission Aviation Fellowship. And then it, back then it was in Redlands, California. So I was getting ready to go and enjoying the thought of flying and serving God in that way. But I also didn't realize what God had planned in terms of how he would speak to me as opposed to me just serving him. Uh, I think when you desire to serve God, you, you picture how you're going to do it and that what you're going to do but you don't always think about how God is going to affect you by what you do overseas. That's my quick, short answer to how I got involved in aviation. For the aviation enthusiast, what kinds of planes did you fly? I had a chance to fly several. They're all relatively small compared to what the airlines use. I flew a Cessna 185, which is what they call a tail dragger. But most of my flights were in the Cessna 206, which is a, a six-place airplane with a pilot and then five passengers. That, for many years, was the standard airplane that MAF used because we flew into very small airstrips in very remote places. So you couldn't bring often large airplanes into those villages with the smaller airstrips. More recently, they've gone to turbine airplanes. It's a different type of engine, but the fuel is much more available around the world than what Avgas is. Uh, in the U.S., a lot of airplanes here use Avgas, but around the world, there's no market for it. So MAF started using single-engine turbine airplanes. Uh, one is the Cessna Caravan, it's a Cessna uh, 208, and then there's also the Kodiak, which is actually right here in Idaho. It's built right here in Idaho, up in Sandpoint. And the man who designed the airplane built it for missionary aviation. And MAF has many, many of those, as well as the Cessna Caravan that we fly. The, the Caravan and the Kodiak carry anywhere from eight to 10 to 12 people, depending on the seating configuration. Were you and Nancy married when you first went overseas? And if you had a family, how old were your children? So MAF there might be man and family. Yes. <laughs> yes, MAF can also mean move again friend. But I haven't heard the man and family. That's, uh, that's pretty good too. Uh, yes, before I went overseas, I uh, married my wife Nancy. And two of our three daughters were born overseas in the country of Indonesia. In fact, for both of our first two, I had to fly her to the hospital two weeks before her due date because we lived in a remote enough place that you couldn't wait until the wife went into labor to bring them to the hospital. We actually had to fly them 
to where they, they deliver. So, so my wife and I flew into a little mission hospital in um, Papua, Indonesia, and waited there for the, the arrival of uh, our first and our second daughters. When she went into labor, it was kind of interesting. We walked across the airstrip from the guest house over to the hospital where uh, a mission doctor uh, delivered the, the girls. <laughs> With that much time in the air, you probably had a lot of challenging moments. What was one of your scariest times? Well, luckily, pilots don't really enjoy scary moments or exciting flights. They really do prefer uh, mundane and uh, very calm flights. But most pilots do have experiences where they, they have to realize that sometimes they're not always in control of... Uh, of every situation. There was one that especially uh, comes to mind, and it really was an experience where I saw God work, and I was just in awe, I guess, uh, through the experience. Uh, it was a time where um, I was flying uh, young people from a village. It was about a half hour from where we lived, and many of the uh, local youth in these villages they go to school from uh, to, through elementary school, but if they want to go to junior high and high school, they have to go to a bigger town to do that. And so one of my tasks for this particular time was bringing students from these remote villages out to where we were, where they had a high school. So there were really hundreds of kids that wanted to come out. So the Pressure was on to try to get as many flights as possible to get the kids into town. And one day I was flying and had several flights back and forth uh, from the village to our place. And the thing you're always dealing with in overseas flying where we were in the mountains was weather. Weather was something you always had to keep your eye on. Uh, we didn't have reporting stations like they do here in the States. We didn't have the GPSs and, and all the information that is available here in the U.S. It was mainly asking people from another station if they had weather, what, it was, what was happening. And so it was getting later in the day, and I knew that the weather was starting to come in, but I thought I could do one more flight go back, half hour flight in, quickly load the students and then bring them out. So about an hour and 15 minute round trip kind of a thing. And so flew in, picked up the five students, flew off. And before I left, I had contacted my home base, asked for the weather. And they said it was still open, but uh, the clouds were starting to, to uh, close in a bit. And so I took off came into a valley. Uh, I had to go through a valley before I went off to, uh, to where my home base was. And as I entered the valley, I could see that ahead of me was a, just a string of thunderstorms that had moved in. They were high and uh, they reached down to the ground. And as I looked, I could see that my destination was really closed off. There was really no way I was going to get through. I called my home base and they said it was closing down in my home base. So I knew that that wasn't a, a possibility. So I turned around to go back to where I was, uh, where I took off from. I was only about 10 minutes out, but 
As I looked back, I saw the clouds closing down the valley that I was in. So I was in this valley, and at both ends of the valley, they were closed off with clouds, with cloud cover overhead. So it's like being in this pot with no way out. Now, in the U.S., you can use instruments to fly out of those kind of things. But where we were in, in Indonesia, in Papua, they didn't have those systems in place, so we couldn't fly instrument. So it was all visual. You had to, you had to see where you were going because you couldn't use your instruments. So I started circling and definitely started praying. I was praying that there might be just an opening. Uh, clouds can be layered and you can, if you circle, you might see an opening that you don't see from one angle, but you can see from another angle. So I'm circling and realizing that there just doesn't seem to be any openings. And at the same time, the clouds are descending overhead. So any good pilot prepares for emergency situations. I started looking where would I put the airplane down if I had to land it. Uh, there was no airstrips there, so I had to figure out what would be the best place to put it. It would be a, a type of hopefully controlled crash landing. As I looked back, I saw the students and their eyes were wide open, wondering what was going on. This wasn't a normal flight. And so I started just praying, Lord, open a door. I don't want to see any of these kids hurt. I don't want anything bad to happen to the airplane. Uh, there's just too many things that have the possibility of going wrong. I continued to circle and, of course, Fuel becomes an issue. How long can you circle before you, you don't want to run out of gas because you want to be able to control your landing if you're, if you're coming in? So all of these things are going through my head. It probably was a matter of 20 minutes or so that I'm circling, trying to figure out the right thing to do. I kept calling my home base, and they said everything was shut down there. The, ho the place where I had left, they were talking about it being shut down as well. And so just as I'm in those final stages of trying to make the decision, okay, where do I put this thing down? I took a, you climb as high as you can to kind of get the best perspective from above that you can. And as I was circling, you know, you're thinking, how many more times can I circle uh, before I have to make this decision? And there was a moment as I circled, I saw a, an opening. I mean, it was, uh, I couldn't believe I actually saw it. And I made a quick circle again. And as I looked, I could see the airport that I'd taken off from. And it was like there was this tunnel all the way from where I was to the landing strip. I had never seen anything like that before in my life. It was just like a tunnel through the clouds. I shot through down to the tunnel. It was about, I was probably about five minutes out. I just dove through this tunnel. I landed at the airstrip. And as I was taxiing in, it just started pouring rain. And my knees were still a little wobbly uh, when I landed. Uh, we waited for it to clear. 
probably an hour or two, it all cleared out and I was able to make the flight home. But one of the things that I remember thinking was, you know, how many people from churches or supporters of ours or whatever pray, and they often will pray generically, you know, Lord, bless the missionaries, keep them safe. And I thought, you know, God kept us safe that day. And I don't know how much of it was from our supporters, the churches, whatever, but I have never experienced anything like that again. And I could just see God's hand in it. He protected uh, myself and those students. Anyway, it was a great example of God's miraculous uh, dealing with somebody who made a, a bad decision and taken off and, and uh, not making it back home right away. So anyway, that was, that was one of my more dramatic. I, I never hope to have anything like that again. <laughs> but it was, uh, it was a chance where I got to see God in really all of his power and glory. And I just uh, give, it, give him all the glory with that. It was totally his doing. Well, Ron, I love that story. I'm wondering, did you ever have an opportunity to deliver Bibles when you were flying with MAF? Boy, what a perfect question. I just happened to have a great story. And I wished I could say that, that it was something that I really uh, organized and made special, but it was one of those things that it hit me later, actually, what had happened. And, and basically, MAF can be fairly busy in that you're bringing things to the missionaries or to uh, the national church or to different people. Uh, you can get busy, and you want to serve God and, and serve Him in any way possible. But sometimes it, it is something where you're, you get caught up in the busyness of serving, and you miss some key things. Well, this one particular day at my home base in Nabi Ray, we always depart early, around six o'clock or so in the morning. And so the night before, they had loaded my airplane with several large boxes. And I was going to a little airstrip called Hitadipa. And it was one of those airstrips that you do go into maybe once every two weeks or so. And so I made sure I brought the mail and that for the missionary. But it was, a, it was a busy flight day, so I got into the airplane and I took off. And when I got to the airstrip, uh, this is an airstrip where it's down in a deep valley and you have to circle overhead so that the people know to get off the airstrip. So this particular day, as I went over the airstrip, I saw thousands of people on the airstrip which is a very unusual. And I thought, oh my gosh, they must be having some big celebration and I hope they get off the airstrip because I can't land with that many people around. And as soon as I was overhead and, and started the circle to let them know I was there, I noticed they all went to the sides of the airstrip. They cleared off immediately. It didn't take long at all. And I was actually very surprised because I didn't think they would be paying that much attention to my little airplane coming in. I made my approach in. It's one of the airstrips where you go in. It's kind of a dead-end airstrip where you 
have to circle overhead to make sure that everything is clear before you come into land because you can't fly out once you get into the valley. So I made my approach in, everything was normal. And as I descended on final, uh, right near the end of the airstrip, I noticed that the thousands of people were all lined up alongside the, the airstrip. And I just, it seemed odd to me. It just was so uh, uncommon the what was happening. So I landed and I, I taxied back to where we drop off the supplies and stuff. And nobody moved. Everybody stayed on the sides of the airstrip. And, and it was fairly quiet. And I couldn't understand. I thought everybody would come pouring back onto the airstrip and go back to celebrating. But nobody did. And I'm looking around trying to figure out what in the world is going on here. And finally, the missionary came down and she said to me, I said, what is going on? Why are all these people here? And she said, you don't know? And I said, no. And at that time, a little old lady, I'm guessing she was probably 60, maybe even older. She grabbed a box, opened it up, grabbed a book out of the box and started running down the airstrip. Now that's a picture to have in your mind is a, a, a little old lady running down the airstrip waving this book in the air and wherever she went the people started just cheering <laughs> louder than i had ever heard anybody cheer and she ran all the way down and was coming all the way back i'm going what in the world is going on here and the missioner says you have brought the first printed Bibles to this tribe. And I couldn't believe that I was not aware of what I was bringing. And I felt so disappointed because I could not stay and celebrate with the people. Now, the people that had portion, Bible portions, it wasn't that they never had the Word of God in their hands but this was the first time they actually had the printed Bible bound where they could carry it with them wherever they went. And I brought, I don't know how many boxes of Bibles to them. And I just realized that here I was coming to serve these people and how I could be so busy serving that I missed the huge blessing of knowing what I was actually bringing. And it really woke me up to being more aware of what I was doing as I was serving out there on the field. So uh, yes, I did bring Bibles to people and it was so cool watching the, the celebration take place. They again had to clear off and I had to take off, but I'll never forget it that sometimes I get too busy. you said you became a follower of Jesus at 21, and yet you were a pastor's kid. How did that work? Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of wondering that myself. 
uh, I did grow up. My my dad was a, a pastor in the church, and we went to church every Sunday. And that's what I thought Christians do: is they get up on Sunday morning, they go to church. And in my case, when I was a kid, I went to Sunday school, and then you go home and carry on life. It wasn't until I was 21 that I actually realized that God was real, and I became a follower of Jesus. In, in my time following my accepting the Lord, I floundered a bit. I wasn't quite sure what to do. I wished I could have uh, been more of service in those earlier days, but I wasn't. But I remember a story from one of the missionaries that I met out in Papua, Indonesia, and he talked about the first convert he had in the tribal group that he was serving in. And I was just amazed at who this person was. After he became this young man, he was a young man single at the time, he became a follower of Jesus through the ministry of this missionary, but nobody else in his tribe had. Now this is a, a fairly primitive tribe. They, they believed in the spirits of the water and the trees and the sky, and they had fetishes, uh, things that they would try to honor to give health for their animals and for their children. So that was their form of religion. Uh, it was animistic. And they felt that they needed to constantly sacrifice to these spirits in order to have a happy and healthy life. Well, when this young man became a follower of Jesus, he realized that he couldn't live in both worlds. He couldn't say that he believed that Jesus was the savior of the world and yet still honor the, the spirits. So he decided to take all of his fetishes that were in his hut and burn them in front of all the people in his community. And of course, all the people thought he was crazy, but he threw the things, they might be a stone from the river, it could be a piece of wood from a tree, it could have been almost anything that they would have to make these fetishes, and he just threw them all in the fire. Well, the people sat back and waited, waited for him to either die or to be inflicted with some incurable disease. Nothing happened. And they couldn't quite understand why the spirits were not attacking this young man. Well, he carried on his life in the village. He was married and he had kids and, and they seemed to do well. His pigs weren't dying. His crops were coming in. They kind of stood amazed. And as he saw the power that he had, or I guess at least it was not being attacked by the spirit powers, he decided to challenge his neighbors to do the same thing he had done. Of course, none of them really wanted to do that. They didn't want to provoke the spirits against themselves. But they did see that this young man had some kind of power. So as he grew in his own boldness, 
he started not only challenging the people to get rid of their fetishes, he actually started going into their huts and taking the fetishes and throwing them in the fire and telling them this is the only way that you can live a happy life. And so the people, of course, were scared to death that now the spirits were going to attack them. And nothing did. He gained more and more bold as he went to the different huts in his own community. He started then to think, well, what about the community farther up the hill there? I should go up there. And pretty soon the whole area knew about this young man and knew that there was something different. He had a power that was beyond what the spirits could deal with because they had never attacked him. So he continued to go from place to place, challenging the people, in some cases going into their huts and actually taking the fetishes and throwing them in the fire. Now I learned all of this from a missionary who had been out there for about 40 years. So I was the new young pilot. I had come and was talking to the missionary on the airstrip one day, and he told me that there was this really old man that was on his deathbed, but they wanted to send him to the hospital because they thought maybe, maybe he still has a few more years left, but he was very sick. So as I was loading him into the airplane, the missionary said, take good care of this guy. Do whatever you can for him. And I said, what, what's, the, what's the deal? And that's when he told me the story. This was his first convert, and this was the young man that went around and had really opened up his whole, this whole tribal group to the gospel because they saw a power in him that, that overrode those of the spirits. And it really opened the door for the missionary to have inroads into the, into the villages uh, because of this young man's bravery. And as I looked at this old man in tattered clothes, very weak, very skinny, uh, carried in on a, on a makeshift stretcher, uh, teeth missing, hair gone. I loaded him into the airplane and the first thing that came to my mind was, I bet you that when he gets to heaven, he's, him and the Apostle Paul are gonna have this like really exciting conversation about the trials and tribulations that they had, the power of God as they both went into inhospitable places. And I looked at myself and I thought, you know, yeah, I can fly a shiny new airplane, but I looked at what this guy accomplished in his area, and I thought, man, I'm going to be standing at the back of the line to talk to Paul. <laughs> and this guy is going to be, Paul is going to be waiting to talk to him. So it was just really um, a really neat experience to see what, uh, what someone who comes to the Lord can do the power that is available and I wished I could have had that maybe earlier on in my life where I could have seen greater things happening but I loved hearing the story 
of, uh, of what God does through, through other people that really just commit themselves to, to God. Well, I could listen to your stories all night, <laughs> all day and all night. This is a good uh, time maybe for you to talk a little bit about MAF and give a little bit of the history and what they're doing today. MAF has been around for 75 years. Uh, they, it came about right after World War II, where pilots... Uh, coming back from the war that were committed Christians felt like the airplane could be used as a tool for good and not just destruction. And there were a group of five, uh, four men and a, and a woman, who uh, came together and started the organization of MAF, Mission Aviation Fellowship. And it's been going strong from 1945 until today. Now, I've retired. I was with MAF for 36 years, and I retired about two years ago. But they continue to serve in remote places where the infrastructure is poor. And we're there to help global workers. We're there to help national churches. We're often first responders in remote places. Probably heard about the, um, the tsunami in uh, Sumatra and you've heard of the hurricane in the Philippines. Yeah, we've done a lot uh, to respond to the needs of people around the world, whether it's earthquakes or tsunamis or pandemics. There's all kinds of things where MAF has been able to go in with uh, use of technology and aviation. I remember uh, where they set up a phone system and a system for the, the workers from different aid agencies uh, where they could communicate back and forth uh, with their home offices. Uh, so technology, MAF has always been more of a technology and service organization using aviation and, and all uh, to help the, the kingdom of God uh, through technical ways. MAF has grown over the years. There is uh, MAF US, which is what I was a part of, but there's also a MAF International, which includes many countries around the world. There were uh, young people uh, want to be involved in serving that might be from Europe or South Africa or Australia uh, that also want to be involved, and so they've got an organization called uh, MAF International as well. So Ron, what would a manager of mobilization do? Well, the, the actually the fun part for me is I, I loved what I did as a pilot mechanic. And so my role in the recruiting or mobilization part of MAF was to bring the people that felt God was calling them to do ministry like MAF does. In other words, using their skills, uh, using their talents as pilots or mechanics or IT professionals or it could be bookkeepers, any of those kinds of operations that 
people don't see as a normal thing for missions, but they do want to serve. And just like as I grew up, uh, not thinking that I could do anything like preaching, when I realized you could you could do something you really loved, like flying and serve God at the same time, I was all in. And uh, so really the, the job is bringing those people that feel God's tugging to go and serve using those skills as a pilot or mechanic and making sure that they have the right motivation and the love for the Lord that they need to have and the technical skills. It's one of those things where you have to be a, a very good pilot. You have to have the technical skills down pat and also have a strong spiritual walk with the Lord uh, to be able to do these things. And so part of my job was to bring those folks in, have evaluation with them, and to go out and encourage young people. There's actually many schools out there that train for aviation. And so uh, as we would go out and talk to young Christians who were pilots or mechanics, they often never knew that there was such a thing that they could dedicate their life to. And so it was a lot of fun to be able to work one-on-one with uh, young people, older people, that wanted to serve God in this unique way. I got to do all that. (laughs) The college where we went had a small aviation program, and it was run by one guy whose last name was Collison. And it was just too similar to collision (laughs) for me. (laughs) I took no lessons. Ron, thanks for coming, for sharing your your life, your stories. This has been great. I've really enjoyed this. We appreciate you taking time out, Ron, to come to our living room studio and tell us some of those great stories of an adventurous life serving God overseas. And to our listeners, we appreciate you joining us again. Remember, you too have a story. Be sure to live it to the fullest. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckyliles.com. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.